0: Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a sunny, soon to be cold Macomb, Illinois, right before the Christmas holiday. And we have got a fun show today. We're going to be talking to entomology specialist, Sarah Hewson, uh, in just a bit. But before we get to Sarah, we have to introduce our co-hosts here that are with us every single week. We have Katie Parker, local foods educator in the Adams County, County, Ursa, Illinois, near Quincy. I think people can zero in on you now, Katie. So welcome to the show, Katie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're giving away my location, Chris. I know.
0: Her address <laughs> is. Uh, oh. kidding,
1: kidding. You can send me freebies. <laughs> yes. Christmas presents.
0: Christmas presents. You know, you got a piece of you know a tractor or something needs to be tried. Oh yeah, he yeah. Can do that for you. Yeah.
1: Definitely do that. Oh yeah. Are you all ready for Christmas?
0: nope no, not at all our (laughs) drive is full of cardboard boxes that have been shipped to our home from who knows where and we have yet to be able to open them because children are ever present
1: from santa claus of course right
0: he's got to ship them in somehow you know yeah reindeer can't carry all of that so Uh yeah that's right so are you are you ready for the big day this week
1: i have one gift left to wrap and i have some baking to do but other than that i think i'm good to go
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, let's ask uh, Ken Johnson, horticulture educator uh, in Jacksonville, Illinois. Ken, are you ready for your
2: favorite day of the year? I am ready. My wife has got all the gifts bought, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's not fair. She's she's the shopper. So,
0: yes did you get did you get your wife something though?
2: Working on it. Okay. I, I keep asking the kids what we're going to get her, and I don't get much in the way of useful suggestions it's usually toys and stuff they want i have to remind them no this is for mom not you
0: well my kids came up with some really good suggestions this morning it's too late to order anything or do anything so (laughs) we're just going with the plan that we have right now so oh yes but our gift i'd say katie we have a gift for ken today we're going to be talking about insects ken loves insects (laughs) Um, So, he is a big fan. We're going to be talking about those that you might be finding in your pantry. We're doing a lot of cooking uh, this year in 2020 and especially now around the holidays. So, we might be running into some of these things that we're going to talk about today that tend to invade our pantry areas where we store our food and such. So in order to talk about this, we have to have our special guest today. It is Sarah Houston. Now, Sarah is an extension specialist in, in entomology, and she's also on the pesticide safety and education team. So Sarah, welcome to the
3: show. Hi, thank you guys for having me.
0: Well, we are happy that you are here to, to help us get into this whole pantry pest thing. But i um, curious though, have, have, are you ready for the holidays coming up or, you know, do, do you have any celebrations, anything planned in 2020, the year that was?
3: Oh my gosh. Not this year, actually. We're <laughs> staying
0: home. Yep. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> how a lot of us are spending our holiday. <laughs> so Sarah, I am curious, you are going, you, you, you went into entomology. Now I'm always wondering this and I've said this on a previous show because I I judge entomology at 4-H and these kids have a fascination with insects beyond anything uh, reasonable. Was that you as a kid? Is that what drove you to the entomology
3: field? Gosh, I don't, you know, I don't know that I was like too zeroed in on insects in particular as a kid. Like I, I definitely did have an interest in insects but I've always been kind of broadly interested in animals. Um, so I knew I was gonna go into some kind of field related to studying animals. Um, but in undergrad, uh, one of the things that was really cool was I got into these invertebrate zoology classes and that's kind of where, I don't know, I, I, I just really found those invertebrate species so much more interesting than some of the other things that we were looking at.
0: Right. And so diverse. Um... I, I, and and what uh, Ken told us this before, there's so many insects on the planet. That there's you know what is it, Ken? That you had mentioned before, or maybe Sarah can tell us. But yes, yeah, so many insects out there. Um, you know, t- hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of times the amount of other animal species.
3: You know, I don't know that particular uh, stat off the top of my head, but I, I can tell you that there are about two million species of insects already described. Uh, about half of those are beetles. And it's estimated that there's another million or two million out there to still be described. So there's definitely like a huge diversity of insects out there.
0: And so as you went from insects, what then led you to extension here in Illinois?
3: Okay, so um, for my graduate studies, I worked on Western corn rootworm beetle, which is one of the most economically important insects on the planet. And as I'm working on that, we were kind of working on um, insect resistant management um, plans and trying to determine, you know, if the resistance management plans that we have in place right now are really effective for this particular species based on its biology. Um, And over time, I've just kind of really like working with people one-on-one. So uh, moving over to Extension is kind of a, a better venue to be able to you know, bring information directly to the folks who need it.
1: I'm going to guess you're also tired of doing root digs.
3: <laughs> root digs. I honestly, I didn't end up doing a ton of root digs. So we were doing more like collecting the beetles directly off the plants um, and then actually looking at their movement within the field. So we actually would get up on scaffolding and catch beetles as they ascended from the field and then kind of look at those guys. Um, or we would look at their gut content to see where they were feeding in the field relative to where we found them. Um, but we did we did work with other um, folks like Nick Tinsley and Ron Estes who um, were previously with U of I and we did do root digs with them and root evaluation. <laughs> That's pretty intense.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not much fun, no. especially in mid-July.
3: Yeah, it's always the hottest time of year. <laughs>
0: It sounds like you're either down on the ground digging or up on a scaffold in the middle of a cornfield. That sounds, n- neither of those sound too appealing.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely the root digs are rough. Um, it's the hottest time of year, um, and you are just covered in mud, hauling these huge corn roots and, and the entire root ball out of the field. Um, so that's, that's pretty intense. And then our scaffolding were about um, was about 30 feet high, so that was uh, challenging in a little bit different way. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Oh, definitely. So, Sarah, from, you know, investigating corn rootworm, wanting to work more one-on-one with people, you are now on the pesticide safety education team here. Um, uh, it's part of Extension. Things are different, though, this year. Um, so, you know, yeah. tell us a little bit about what the team does and how are we adapting what is being done uh, coming up for the the upcoming pesticide testing and training year?
3: Okay, so so typically the Pesticide Safety Education Program, um, we are our team of five experts and our coordinator. And what we'll do is actually um, visit all different cities around Illinois. We'll hold training clinics, and folks can come and we help them prep for their exams. So everybody who's applying pesticides, either commercially or private, need to be licensed to do that, and make sure that folks are doing that in a safe and effective way, safe for the folks who are handling the pesticides, um, but also the environment and anybody who might come in contact with that. So what we're doing this year is because we can't have these large group meetings and and our our in-person trainings would house normally like 200 to 400 people per clinic. So um, large, large groups of people. So what we're doing this year to Um, make sure that everybody has the opportunity to go to training, but not be crammed in a room full of people given the coronavirus is we're actually move those trainings online. So for anybody who still needs to do their training, um, anybody who's planning on doing a training in the future, maybe they're getting, you know, licensed for the first time, they can actually go to our website and that will take them to Moodle where they can sign up for an online training.
0: We can leave a link to the PSAP website in the show notes uh, below. So yeah, that a brave new world of uh, pesticide education. Um, I, I I might miss getting together with the PSEP team. You know, in the coming months, usually we would have these like huge halls full of farmers and uh, you know uh, landscapers, uh, all all kinds of people from whoever needs to spray a pesticide. Hundreds of people, and you know it would be a lot of fun just you know seeing seeing the PSEP team. So. Uh, we will miss that, but we're, we're happy that you did all of that work getting the trainings put online. That must have been a lot of work getting them into Moodle. Oh, my goodness.
3: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's been an incredible amount of work. Um, you know, you would think you would just kind of like hit record and then give the presentation as you normally would, but um, it just doesn't work out that way. You know, you want to make sure that everything um, is articulated really well, sounds nice and crisp, goes through the whole editing prog- program and things like that. Uh, So it does take a long time. We're actually still um, creating trainings. So we actually have them rolling out on a schedule. So um, like our general standards and private trainings are already out, field crops are already out, rights of way is already out. Um, But in the next coming months, we're gonna have turf and ornamental coming out, um, aquatics. And eventually, I think in February, we're planning on on releasing mosquito. So Mm. we're gonna have a lot of topics covered online this year.
0: And also, before we we started the show, you had mentioned a a conference. I think it bears repeating. I I live in a home formerly occupied by a structural pest known as a termite, but Purdue is offering a structural pest conference coming up. Uh, Tell us more about that.
3: Yeah, so the Purdue um, Pest Management Conference is coming up. It's in January, and that one is going to be mostly geared toward um, pest control specialists and pest control technicians where they can actually go and learn about different types of control methods, learn about the biology of different types of pests they may control, and they can also earn CEUs and things like that to maintain their license. And it's also open to basically anybody who would want to go to that. So if anybody is interested in that, they are welcome to check that out. That's on the Purdue website.
0: Perfect. And we will link to that as well. But speaking of pests, Sarah, we got to get into the topic of the day. Pantry pests. Now, I think we've all heard the statistics of you know, oh, you're eating you know so many grasshoppers with every bar of chocolate that you you eat. You know, so it's it's like, are insects really in all of this food? You know, should we just expect or assume the things we have in our pantry are full of insect parts?
3: That's a good question, Chris. So um, I would say maybe don't expect that they're full of insect parts. Um, but it is certainly something that can happen. So the FDA actually releases certain limits on the amount of insect material that can be in certain types of foods. So if you think of something like peanut butter where everything is you know very cooked and processed, um, that's something that I could potentially have something in it. There are limits for that. Um, if you're thinking about like cash crops like broccoli, um, where you're, you know, buying the whole plant that you're planning on eating. Um, there may be some aphids in there, and they do have like a limit on the number of aphids that could be found in that particular crop. So um, all these different types of products do have limits and standards on, on what is acceptable.
0: And I'll just add, they, they can be delicious. I had Brussels sprouts <laughs> the other night, and I cut off the, the basal end, the, the part that connects to the stem, and I cut it off, and there's there's a little worm or caterpillar, probably bored bore into it. I'm like, uh-oh, take it out, put it aside. Next one, same thing, same thing. We still ate the Brussels sprouts, but I'm the only one who knew what was inside of them. So nobody said anything. And they're still delicious. So yeah, they're not gonna hurt you. I don't well, hopefully not, but yeah.
3: I think things like that probably wouldn't, and and I think it's you know, it's important to remember too that. You know, these these are agricultural products. They they are grown outdoors and they are grown outdoors and having insects is just part of life and part of sharing our world with those animals.
2: Nobody knew until now that <laughs> they were in there. Um before our next question, um, I did look up the insects because it was gonna bother me. Um that I didn't know this off the top of my head. Well, I love um, Ken. <laughs> so, for, so for, from what I found, there are 1.4 billion insects for every human on earth. So that comes out to something like 10 quintillion insects on earth. So wow. little Jeopardy <laughs> information there for you.
1: Sounds like a sustainable food system.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, the, um, so one thing we tend to get calls about quite a bit, um, really any time of the year, but especially now this time of year when people are doing lots of cooking are about moths um, in their in their flour or or what have you. Um, So any ideas as to what those are and how would we go about controlling those?
3: Yeah, so the, the two main moths that you hear about are Indian meal moth and meal moth. And I'd say, you know, we could probably just stick to talking about Indian meal moth because it's the most common. And this is an insect that the, the larvae can actually feed on different types of grains and stored product. So something like flour, or even you know small grains like rice. These things can get into pasta. They can get into pet foods, um, in particular things like dog food, or even you know seeds that you would keep for like a hamster or a bird. Um, those can be attractive sites for those types of insects.
2: I'll you know, say we bought some bird seed last year and let it sit for a while and <clears throat> open it back up and there's all kinds of moths and caterpillars and all kinds of fun stuff in there.
3: Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the main places you see that. And I, I think a lot of folks are, are thinking about the different types of products they buy at the grocery store. Um, but I, I do tend to see them more in pet supplies and pet foods.
1: Sorry, Is there anything that we can do to like prevent that?
3: Yeah, there are a number of different things that you can do if you do find them or just to avoid them. So if you are just trying to avoid those types of insects, um, the best thing you can do is try to inspect the products really well before you get home, especially if you're buying from um, some some type of bulk bin. Those are places where you can have those creatures get into. And one of the really, really good ways to prevent things from moving around in your pantry um, is to make sure you store all of those things in airtight containers. So whether that be like a Mason jar or some kind of Tupperware, um, that is the best way to limit the motion or the movement of those animals. So that's gonna prevent them from moving, you know, from one product into another, that type of thing. Um, Some other things that work really well, and I tend to do this with um, animal feeds is to actually keep them in the fridge because even though they're, they're in that tight container, if you keep them in the fridge, if you do have some type of insect in there, that will actually slow their development as well.
0: I, I was thinking like storing grains and cereals and stuff in containers, that must be a generational thing because my grandma would do that. I mean, you go to the grocery store and she would come home and she'd take all the spaghetti noodles, put it in a her her glass jars. And, and so I'm, I'm guessing our food supply system has been doing a better job at keeping these out because that's never something I necessarily thought about, um, when I went to the grocery store, but my grandma definitely, you know, stored everything in airtight containers.
3: Yeah, I think that's true because I think now, you know, you go to these big, you know, food processing facilities and there's a lot of pest control going on in types in those types of facilities. Um, a lot of times when you buy grains and things like that, they might come in a cardboard box, but inside that cardboard box, they're sealed inside a plastic container or a plastic bag. So that's another thing that can help kind of prevent the movement of those types of moths. But I think, you know, even a couple decades ago, you know, you could find things more readily in bolt bins at different types of shops. So that would be a little bit higher risk for those types of pests, because you know, those bins are open and closed a lot.
1: What about maggot looking things in our flower? What do you think these are?
3: So that could be a number of different things. Um, the first type of things that come to mind for me would be um, like red flower beetle, confused flower beetle, maybe your granary weevil, something like that. So they're not, they're not true maggots because they're not, they don't come from a fly. Um, but these are beetle larvae and they can be kind of small and long and tan and have that look about them. So with these ones, um, the best way to you know, prevent them or to get rid of them if you have them is the same as with the Indian meal moth. So you want to try to prevent them by keeping things in, you know, their own type of container, uh, prevent them spread to different locations. But if you do have an infestation of those types of things, uh, the best thing you can do is actually start to inspect some of the different products that you have in your pantry and try to identify which one is kind of the source where it's coming from and then get rid of that. And when you get rid of it, you can do that a number of different ways. You could just, you know, package that up and throw that in an outdoor trash can. Um, You could put it in the freezer. Or in some cases, you can even heat things um, to a temperature where those larvae can't survive. So maybe bake them at like 130, 150, and that's a good way to kill them.
1: And if you can't kill them, it'll just add a little extra crunch to your cookies or something.
0: (laughs) Is this white chocolate in your cookies, Grandma?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. <laughs> m <M&M's. Extra> protein.
0: <laughs> so is that why we sift flour is to sift out all of the, the bugs? Is that from an old timey thing?
3: That's a good question. I I don't think that we do that specifically to sift out the insects, um, but you could use it for that. I think the, the main reason that we sift them out is just to make sure there aren't any clumps in the flour when you're baking.
0: That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm kind of changing gears here. Um, we were talking about things that might infest grains and cereals, things like that. But what about the nefarious cockroach? Um, humans seem to have this like natural revulsion of cockroaches. Uh, so do you know, Sarah, are, are we afraid of these things because they spread disease or we just kind of equate them to filth? And what do we do if they get into our pantries?
3: Okay, so I honestly I think both of those things are true. I think a lot of times people do like have a really strong like negative association with cockroaches and you do think of them and being in locations that maybe aren't that clean. Um, That's not necessarily true, Um, but we, we do have a little bit of an association with them with health issues. So if somebody is living in a location that's actually infested with cockroaches, those folks are more likely to have issues like asthma or have issues like asthma irritated by having those roaches around. So as they molt their skins and things like that, as those kind of get broken up into particles, um, that's something that can be problematic for folks with asthma. Um, Another thing that can happen is as those roaches kind of move through a kitchen, you know, they might visit the trash can, then they might visit the pantry or your countertops and they can actually move detrimental bacteria onto those different surfaces. So they can be a health risk in in that aspect as well. So they could actually bring um, things like E. coli or, or other types of bacteria from your trash can into your food products or onto surfaces where you're preparing foods. So cockroaches can be a bit of a health risk.
0: That's a good reason, probably, for control. Then, so I mean, what's the best thing? Roach motels or spraying? What? what how can we kill a cockroach if they're supposed to be able to survive the nuclear winter? That's <laughs> an eventuality, it seems.
3: <laughs> That's a good question. So um, with cockroaches, I I would generally, you know, suggest just calling a professional to help with the cockroaches um, because in some cases, you know, if you buy some over the counter products. Some populations of roaches are, are already resistant to some of the materials that are in those um, in those different products. But also, sometimes it can be hard to actually get the product to the location where the roaches are living. Um, sometimes they do like to hide in, in very closed-off lo- locations. So if you're spraying just surfaces around the house, um, you're more likely to come in contact with that in some cases than the roaches themselves, because they like to hide away under things and within things. Um, Some of the places where roaches really like to hide are actually in electronics. So you have some different types of devices that are like on all the time and they like to wedge inside there because it's kind of like a nice warm place to hide. Um, They like to get in, you know, the backs of refrigerators near the motors. They like to get in the backs of like washers and dryers by the motors and and those are places where they do like to hang out. So the types of things that do work really well for roaches are products like baits because, you know, they might have kind of a fatty or or sugary material in that bait that will attract the roaches and they'll feed on that. And that's what will actually kill them.
2: And I would say another big thing is sanitation, making sure you're cleaning up spilled food and not leaving dishes sit out overnight and stuff like kind of reduce some of that food source for them too.
3: Yeah, that's, that's actually, you know, one of the main um, suggestions to help control roaches is just to eliminate any type of habitat or resource that might be attractive to them. So yeah, any types of, you know, crumbs around or something that they would be really attracted to, um, you know, making sure you're taking out the trash. If somebody does have roaches, I would say take it out basically every single day, you know, because that's going to be a source that they're going to be really attracted to. Um, you also tend to find them in locations where you have water sources because our homes are actually like deserts for insects. So when you do find them, they do tend to be in your water sources because they're so scarce in our homes.
2: And I'll say having hissing cockroaches is always fun when your kids tell people that your house is full of cockroaches. <laughs> and usually they have to qualify that with their pets. They are supposed to be there. <laughs> and then another thing we commonly see in, in houses, especially come spring um, our tiny little ants and stuff that start showing up. Um, a lot of times they're getting into pantries and you see them run around on counters and stuff. Um, so what are some ways we can keep them kind of under control out of the house and stuff?
3: Okay. So usually the type of ant that you see are the odorous house ants, and those are going to be those really small guys that come in. Um, some of the best ways to control the odorous house ants are to actually follow them back and try to find the location where they're coming into the house. And then kind of seal that gap. And you can do that with caulk or plaster, those types of things. Uh, In some cases, if they're really persistent, they'll they'll move to another location. And I've actually had them chew back through caulk um, to get back into the house before. So they can be super, super persistent. Um, This is another one where, you know, removing food sources is really going to help reduce the ants. It's going to make the area less attractive for them. So they're going to be interested in locations like your pantry, uh, but they might also be interested in even like drips on the tile and things like that. Um, If they find like a starchy food source or a sugary food source, those are gonna be really attractive to them. Um, Your pet food is another one that's gonna be really attractive to them. Um, So for that one, I would say, maybe just move that pet food to a completely different location away from where you're seeing those ants. And that's gonna help reduce their interest in coming into your house Um, but with ants sometimes they'll just keep you know moving to another location moving to another location moving to another location so in some cases it's going to help you out to provide a little bait for them Um, and that's a good way to kind of target an insecticide treatment really well is to provide an attractive bait now with your odorous house ants um, they're going to be attracted to sweet and starchy baits um, but there are other types of ants out there that will be attracted to more kind of greasy fatty baits. So if you're looking for something like that, um, those are kind of characteristics of those treatments that you might want to tailor to your specific ant species. And if you don't know, you know, what type of ant you have in the house, you can also collect a few and then send them to your local extension person. Um, that's something that if you send them to me, I can ID that ant to you uh, for you and help you figure out which one you've got.
0: Oh yeah, I love looking at ants under a microscope to see uh, their, uh, their, let's see, their segments. Some of them have, I don't know the proper terms, I'll just call it the hump. <laughs> some don't have the hump, some the have very hair, oh, thank you Ken, <laughs> some have the hairs on the back, so, and then there's been times where I've, I've smashed them, I, they smell like, is it citronella? That's a citronella ant, yeah, so ants are kind of fun to identify, I think.
3: Yeah. They actually, some of the ants actually have really cool structures on their bodies. Um, So some of them they'll have this kind of like slender waist area and they might have like a little projection kind of sticking up from that. And that's one good way to identify them. Some of them have maybe two little projections sticking up like little spines. Some of them have a single one. Some of them don't have one at all. Um, And that, that structure, the pedicle is something that, that can be really, really good characteristic for ID. And I think, um, you know, folks maybe think, maybe, oh, we have like five or six species of ants in the area. No big deal. We can ID those really easily. But we actually have a lot of different species of ants in Illinois. So I think sometimes folks can be a little bit surprised to find out that there are more than, you know, your odorous house ant, your carpenter ant, your pavement ant. There are a lot of different species out there.
0: And that's when when I always call Sarah. (laughs) Help (laughs) me. I don't know what this is. (laughs) Well, uh, Sarah, speaking of of questions and bringing things in the office, we are also a question and answer show. So we do have some questions that have come in uh, from around the state or or area and social media. So if you don't mind helping us answer some of these. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Ken, why don't you kick us off with our first question?
2: All right. This first one comes from Adams County um, and they have had small brownish tan moths flying around their home for about a week. Uh, then they looked at a package of paper towels that they've, they just got from the store and the moths were inside the plastic wrapping. Um, so they're thinking that they must have come from the paper towels. How do they get rid of these moths flying everywhere? Um, can they use the paper towels? And it looks like there are cocoons in the paper towel
3: roll. Okay. So um, I would say that does sound like something like Indian meal moth or meal moth and Um, You probably can use the paper towels, but if you keep the paper towels around, you're going to continue to have those moths come out. So I would say maybe um, get rid of them or if you don't want to get rid of them, you want to be able to use them because you don't want to waste them. Uh, Maybe move them to maybe a garage location where you can use them for um, something, something outdoors so those moths aren't in the house. Now um, with these moths, uh, what they're going to do is the the larvae and the eggs are going to be in some kind of stored product um, but when those larvae are ready to pupate they're actually going to climb out of that product and move on to something else and they're going to build little cocoons where they're going to pupate so it might be that you just have some cocoons and some adults emerging from those on the paper towels um, and they if. If you've just gotten them from the store and you find those cocoons on them, that might be what's going on. Maybe those pupae were from the store, um, but it might be worth looking around at the products in that area to make sure that there aren't some larvae in some other products near where those were stored.
0: Uh, I've seen pheromone traps for these things. Is that something people could buy to, to control or is it more of a monitoring thing?
3: Um, I have heard that people do have some success with a pheromone traps. Typically, um, what that's used for is for monitoring your population. So if you're not sure, you think maybe, oh, I think I saw a moth. I'm not so sure I saw a moth. Um, Having a type of trap with a pheromone lure is going to bring those, especially those male moths, to that trap. And then you can kind of figure out which type of moth you have, kind of confirm that, or see if you still have an active population, that kind of thing. Um, if you have a very small population, it's something that might work in reducing that population, but typically trapping um, is just to monitor populations. I would say the most effective way to get rid of India meal moth is to just find the source of whatever they're coming off and remove that. So that might be, again, figuring out which product they've come out of, and then putting that in the freezer or, or throwing that in an outdoor trash can. Um, and just removing those insects from the house completely.
1: So our next question comes from Facebook and the person asking the question says they've identified Indian meal moth in their house. Some people online say to spray your pantry with bug killer, but others say that it's dangerous. Is there anything safe that you can spray to control the Indian meal
3: moth? Um, You know, there might be a product out there that's for that purpose, but I personally would not want to spray an insecticide um, where I'm storing food. So I would say maybe try to avoid that type of thing completely. Um, Again, the best thing you can do is figure out what particular product they're coming from and remove that. And that's, that's something that works really well because you are going to knock down a huge pro- portion of that population. And, and in, doing that and putting all of the products into, you know, closed containers, that's going to prevent those moths from moving into new products as well.
2: You probably have a hard time finding something labeled spray.
3: Yeah. I, I would be really surprised if you were able to find something labeled for that purpose. Um, usually, you know the the folks who are looking for a pesticide to spray even onto you know fruit or veg that you might eat, um, they also go through you know an entire training program where they learn about like what is and is not appropriate to apply for these uses, um, and you know what is the breakdown period for those types of products, and you know how to wash them properly before you know they're sold to customers that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I would not recommend. You know, spraying a pesticide in a location where you're going to be in physical contact with it or consuming it.
1: Are desiccants sometimes used to control like pantry pest?
3: I feel like I've, I've heard about people using desiccants to help control pantry pests, but I think um, overall just, you know, removing that source is going to be the best thing you can do. Um, for different types of pantry pests and actually also for different types of wood boring insects, um, additional moisture is going to make those products more accessible to them. They're going to be able to consume them more readily. So desiccants can help in, in re- um, I guess, slowing that life cycle a little bit and making that food a little bit less attractive to them. But um, you know, yeah, the best thing to do is just to, to completely get them out of the system and get rid of them.
2: Yeah, usually when I get pantry pest questions, you know, just kind of tell people you can, spray everything you want but until you get rid of that source you're just going to have to keep doing it until you get rid of it
3: yeah and i know um i've read some articles too where they talked about in different types of food production plants and stuff they they had applied different types of pesticides for india mule moth and they found that they actually evolved resistance pretty quickly Um, so it's it's not a good uh, long-term option for these insects
2: all right. Our next question comes from Warren County. Um, there is a dead tree stump in this person's yard, and it is infested with carpenter ants. Um, I don't. They don't want them coming into their home. So, what can they spray on the tree stump to get rid of them?
3: Okay, I would say for carpenter ants. Um, You might not want to spray something on the log to treat the carpenter ants. Um, They're actually going to be nesting within that log so they might not be coming in contact with a spray application very readily. Um, So for carpenter ants you might want to try baiting uh, or you might want to try you know contacting a pest control company who is usually dealing with outdoor applications like that. Um, In some cases they do have some products that can penetrate the wood a little bit better Um, that are not gonna be something that a homeowner is gonna get a hold of at like a grocery store or something like that. Um, The other thing that I think is worth pointing out with your carpenter ants is, you know, if that that stump is kind of far away from the house, you might not have to worry about them making their way to the house. So it might be something where you can just kind of let them do their thing out there and not have to worry about that. Um, The carpenter ants, they don't eat the log itself. Um, They just, you know, house their young in the house, basically, and they they nest, um, sorry, in the house, in the log um, or in the stump. And what they're actually going to do is be feeding on other types of insects or sweet and starchy products. Um, They actually will farm aphids and consume their droppings, honeydew, which is basically sugar water. So um, they are something that can live in the landscape and not necessarily be problematic. And they're also going to play a good role in helping to break down that stump. So they are good decomposers as well.
1: Our next question comes from McDonough County. And this person has been growing tree fruit in their backyard for a few years, but they have problems with worms in the fruit. What can they do to stop this and get apples for next year?
3: Okay. So, um, okay. So you're growing apples. Um, for apples, if you're getting worms inside your apples, that's probably coddling moth or oriental fruit moth. And those are the two most common worms that you can find in apples. Now, with these guys, uh, some of the best treatments could be, you know, spray applications at the exact right timing on the surface of the apples. Um, but one of the things that works really, really well is a mate disruption. And for mate disruption, what this is, is basically you can find a pheromone lure, and usually they'll come um, in a little, kind of like a twist tie, and you can tie that loosely around different branches on an apple tree or even a peach tree. And um, the moths are going to smell that, and they're going to get kind of confused. So normally what a male moth will do is smell this pheromone that's released by a female moth and then kind of like orient himself to that scent to locate her. But when you add these different uh, pheromone scent lures in different locations around this tree, that male is not gonna be able to find that female. He's gonna get confused and go in the wrong direction. So it actually will prevent those moths from reproducing as readily. So that's something that does work really, really well in fruit trees uh, to reduce your insect population. Um, But we also have Let's see, I have this pulled up here. Um, we also have a Midwest Fruit Pest Management Guide from 2019 and 2020. Um, and I can actually, I can give you guys a link to that, um, I guess to send to this person and that can help them. Now this particular particular manual is more for commercial production, but if they're looking for additional information about like what types of products folks sometimes use, or if they're looking for information about the biology of these pests, this can be a really good resource. Okay, so I've sent that one over to you guys. Perfect,
0: thank you. Yep, and we'll we'll link that as well, yeah.
2: Okay. And I think a lot of times that mating disruption is, I think it works best with kind of large blocks. Yeah. Um, I think if you have one or two fruit trees, it's a little less um, effective a lot of times. And I think when, when you're wanting to spray for those, it's usually um, petal fall is when they'll be out starting to lay eggs on the, by the the developing fruit so petal fall that first cover spray are going to be the most important sprays Um, and some of the stuff you can use like the multi-purpose fruit sprays which a lot of homeowners are going to use um, are going to be fairly effective with that and and making sure you're keeping up with those cover sprays throughout the year because we can't have multiple generations um, and making sure you're doing those cover sprays every 10 to 14 days whatever the label spray um, says um, should do a pretty good job of of keeping those um, coddling moths and stuff under control. All right, and then our last question um, is from everywhere. So this is one that kind of will frequently pop up from time to time. Um, so they have small brown um, bugs um, coming near the edge of their kitchen cabinet um, near the floor and they just discovered a RIDX box um, in the basement um, that these seem to be coming from. Um, what are these little insects and what can they do to get rid of them?
3: Okay, um, so Your Ridex is going to be another one of these kind of starchy type products, and you can actually have a number of different types of little brown beetles and that type of thing that could be living in that product. So um, for this one, I would say that maybe one of the better things you can do is store that type of product, you know, outdoors, maybe in the shed or in a garage and not necessarily in the house. And I think that this is, um, you know, something we were discussing earlier is kind of a perennial problem with the RIDEX products is that folks find that they have insects coming out of this. And um, so for the folks with the septic tank, this is not necessarily a product you can do without. So it might be best to find a good way to store these, maybe in a completely sealed container or store them yeah, in a shed or garage if possible, you know, to keep from bringing those insects indoors.
2: Or Only buy it when you need it. Don't stockpile it.
0: <laughs> well, that was a lot of great information, Sarah. Thank you so much for helping us answer those questions that have come in, and for your time today to talk about pantry pests. And now i I feel like uh, I, I feel like we're in good shape in my house, but I might need to investigate some more things. I might have seen a moth flitting around there, and it's kind of cold out for moths to be coming in from outside. So, thank you so much, Sarah.
3: Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And feel free to send any additional questions if you guys have it or, or send insects to me for ID because um, I do do insect ID for the public um, and for different extension branches as well.
0: Excellent, yes. And uh, a huge resource here for us uh, uh, in Illinois uh, to have Sarah with us, an and entomologist. Oh my gosh, it's so fun to, to see entomology. Uh, it seems like, because um, people always want to know about the bugs. There's always the bug questions that just seems to come in and I'm a landscaper. Gosh, darn it. I I don't know much about the bugs (laughs) other than that to keep them off of you, you know, spray a little deep on yourself. So, so, well, thank you again, Sarah. We really do appreciate your time today. Uh, The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks goes out to Ken and Katie for being with us this week. Once again, the last episode, the 50th episode of 2020 can you believe it's been 50 number five zero we We're crazy when we started this in March I think so
2: Ken Katie thank you for being here
1: thank you you guys it's always great to be here and thank you Sarah for joining us today
2: yes thank you Sarah thank you as always Chris and Katie let's do this again next year oh and we shall do this again next year we are going
0: to be talking with a farmer this is an ask a farmer segment uh, it's matt Boosterhouse, and he is a a corn bean farmer at, at here in central illinois and he is going to he's going to tell us all about being a farmer so if you have questions for a farmer we're going to ask a farmer next year 2021 on the good growing podcast folks thanks for doing what you do best and that is listening or if you're watching us on youtube watching and as always keep on growing